0: Good morning, I'm Pastor Scott, and it really is a privilege to open God's Word to you and teach you this morning. If you brought your Bibles with you or you have a Bible app on your device, please turn to Psalm 139. We'll be spending our morning looking at this chapter, and the topic of it is what God thinks about you. Now, before I start the message, I know that all of you were thinking one thing when you woke up this morning. I sure hope there's a pop quiz this morning at church. And I'm not going to disappoint you. As you answer these questions, there is one rule. You cannot answer out loud. So everything has to be done inside your mind. Uh, anybody caught talking to their neighbor or saying an answer out loud will be taken directly to the dean's office. Are you ready? We're not going to take a lot of time on each question, but here we go. What country makes Panama hats? Ecuador. In which month do Russians celebrate the October Revolution? November, of course. The Russian calendar used to be 13 days behind ours. How long did the 100 years war last? 116 years. You're getting the picture, right? All right, keep answering. From which animals do we get cat gut? Sheep and horses. What is a camel's hairbrush made of? If you say a camel, you're really off mark here. Squirrel fur. The Canary Islands are named after what animal? Dogs. The Latin name was Insularia Canaria, Island of the Dogs. What was King George VI's first name? Albert. When he came to the throne in 1936, he respected... The queen's wish that no future king would ever be named Albert. That's a good way to start off a marriage, isn't it? What color is a purple finch? Red. Where are Chinese gooseberries from? New Zealand. And last, how long did the Thirty Years' War last? Thirty years, of course. Did anybody get all of those answers right? Ah, you liars. (laughs) And you're in church, no less. Well, my point is that our knowledge is very limited, isn't it? Even when we think we know something, quite often we're wrong. Fortunately, that is not true of God. God knows everything, and he is never wrong. So today, as we look at Psalm 139, just remember that of all the 150 psalms that were written, Many Bible scholars believe this is the one that best describes God's personal relationship with us. It's communicating that God is not far off, but he is near to each of us. So the first thing that we learn from Psalm 139 is that God sees everything about me. So let's look at this starting at verse 1, and we'll read the first four verses together. O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. This section is describing one of God's attributes, which is called his omniscience. Now, if you split that into two words, you get Omni, which is all, and science, which is the study or the knowledge of things about the universe. So omniscience simply means all-knowing. God knows everything. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is no question that God cannot answer and no problem that confuses him. He is never shocked and he is never surprised. These verses list three specific areas of what God sees about us. And the first is, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. God knows when I wake up in the morning, and he knows when I go to bed at night. And that is showing the two opposites of this rising up and going down or showing all of our actions throughout the day. God knows all of our habits, our good habits and the bad ones. He knows the weak areas and the strong ones. He sees them all. He knows them better we, than we do. And God also knows every word that I say. That's seen in verse 4 when it says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He doesn't just know what we say after we say it. He knows it before we say it, even before we think it. Now, if you're like me, that may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because I've said a lot of things that I've regretted later. And then I think, God, you knew already that I was going to say that and you knew that I was going to regret it. Couldn't you have just warned me in advance so that I could have just kept my mouth closed? I mean, maybe if God sent me a text once in a while that said, Scott, Friday at 2.38 p.m., do not say anything. Keep your mouth closed. Use duct tape if necessary. Sincerely, God. I haven't received one of those messages yet. But I have a feeling, knowing Pastor Mike and Pastor DeAndre, that sometime the next week I'm going to get a text that's signed God that says, Scott, at 1130 on Sunday morning, the third thing that God knows is seen in verse 2. You discern my thoughts from afar. You know, doctors can do some pretty amazing things with technology that's available today. They can put the scope down your throat and look inside of you, take pictures, even video. And that's pretty amazing. But magnify that a billion times over, and you have God seeing everything, and not just your physical body. He sees inside your mind, and he knows what you're thinking. He knows everything that we have ever thought. Verse 6, loosely translated, says, that blows my mind. Now, that's the Pastor Scott translation. What King David wrote is, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It is for me too. How can you grasp a God who knows every thought that you've ever had, plus all the thoughts of the billion, the seven billion other people that are alive today? Or what about all the billions of people that were alive before us? That's hard to take in. Now, if God sees and knows everything we do, or or even the things that we think, what does that mean to us? That means that God has enormous power to encourage me in what's right, and also to help me in times of temptation. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. That is a very encouraging verse, because God knows in advance what you're going to face, and he promises to provide a way of escape from that temptation. He knows exactly the struggle that's going on in my mind. He sees it coming before I see it coming, and he's already prepared an escape route so that I can get away from that temptation. Also, because God sees me when I'm being tempted, that's motivation in itself not to give in. I, I don't want to sin when I know that God's watching. That's just human nature. I mean, if you know that a cop is sitting along the side of the road with a radar gun, you slow down, right? How many of you use the app called Waze? A few of you. It's a GPS app, but in addition to telling you how to get from point A to point B, It will also tell you when there's a police officer ahead. And what do you do as soon as that pops up on your app? You slow down, right? It doesn't matter even if you were already going the speed limit or even under it. We slow down. So when I'm tempted and I know God's aware of it, I'm more likely to avoid that temptation, especially when I realize that God isn't waiting to bust me, but that he wants to help me. This coming week, you're going to face some temptation, and I don't know when it will come or what it will be, but God does. God already knows about it, and he has already prepared an escape route, a way out of the temptation. Now, let's go on to the next section of Psalm 139, when the focus shifts just a little bit. And the second thing that we learn from that psalm is that God is continually with me. And we're going to start at verse 5 here. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In this section, David starts talking about God's omnipresence. Again, omni means all, and so this means that God is present everywhere at the same time. God is present everywhere in the universe, all at the same time. But it's not like he's stretched out really thin so that he can be over there a little bit and over here a little bit. No, he's fully present at every place and at every time. I know that's difficult to understand. It is for me as well. But it shouldn't surprise us that we cannot fully understand God, because if we could understand everything about God, then we would be greater than him, and we're not. Think about this. The nearest star is 4.35 light years from Earth. To reach that by jet plane would take you 53 billion years. That's really far, isn't it? But the Hubble Space Telescope has sent back pictures of galaxies that are 2,000 times farther away. And the light from those galaxies left there 7,000 years ago and is only now reaching this part of the universe but God is fully there in that farthest part of the galaxy, just like he is here this morning in this room. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. If God were to go on vacation, even for a minute, the universe would fall apart. But because he is God, he can be everywhere at once. That does not mean that God is everything. That's an error people have fallen into many times called pantheism. Pantheism is the view that God is everything and everyone, and that everyone and everything is God. Pantheism is similar to polytheism, which is the the worship and belief in many gods. But this goes beyond polytheism to teach that everything is God. A tree is God. A rock is God. An animal is God. The sky is God. The sun is God. And you are God. The Bible clearly teaches that that is not true. God is the creator of all that you see, but don't confuse the creator with his creation. He is not everything, but he is everywhere. People throughout history have been asking the question, where is God? And that is an important question. A person who's carrying around a lot of guilt wants to know where God is so that they can go the other direction. Think about of Adam and Eve. After they had sinned, what did they try to do? They tried to hide themselves from God. The hurting person wants to know because She feels abandoned by God, asking, where is God when I need him? I think of Job, when everything had been taken from him, and wondering, where is God? The lonely person wants to know, where is God, and why do I feel so alone? That reminds me of the story of Naomi in the book of Ruth. You may need to look that one up this afternoon. If I know that God is always with me, then I can depend on him no matter what I face. No matter what trouble I'm facing, no matter how bad things look, I know that He's right there with me. Psalm 34 18 says, The Lord is near to those who are discouraged. He saves those who have lost all hope. If you're discouraged this morning, there's one thing I can say to you with complete confidence God is with you. He has not abandoned you. Is your heart breaking this morning? The Lord is near you. Are you lonely? You're not alone. God is with you. Do you feel like you don't know which way to go? God is with you, ready to direct you. In verses 9 through 10, it says, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If you realize that God is with you, then you know that you have nothing to worry about. He will guide you and he will hold you fast. You can trust him no matter what comes along. The next section of Psalm 139 is one of the best-known parts of the Bible. It's one reason that people, so many people love this psalm. It's talking about how God planned out everything about us. And we're going to begin at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. In our society, we put an incredible amount of importance on how we look because we believe the myth that says, if you look good, then you must be good, or at least okay. Or if I looked better, my, my life would be better, and that's wrong thinking. It's amazing what we do to make ourselves look good. Liposuction, implants, facelifts, nose jobs, tanning beds, and the list goes on. On a PBS television special, Harold Kushner said, tomorrow morning, if every woman in America woke up feeling good about her appearance, the American economy would collapse. He continues on, whole industries are built on the notion that women are afraid they will not be lovable unless they measure up to some standard of performance. But God says in Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. No matter how hard you work at it, beauty does not last. Quite often when I am doing premarital counseling with a couple, I will ask them to face each other and look, and I say, that's as good as it's going to get, because it's all downhill from here. Reminds me of a story I heard about two elderly women who were living at a rest home. And they were sitting on the front porch one morning when an elderly man streaked by, wearing nothing but his birthday suit. And the first lady said, did you see what that man was wearing? And the second woman said, no, but whatever it was, it needed ironing. First Samuel sixteen seven says, the Lord sees not as the man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We place far too much emphasis on how we look. And God places no emphasis on how we look. God says it doesn't matter because you can't judge a person by their appearance. And that verse that I read to you from 1 Samuel sixteen seven is not like a one-verse proverb. It's part of a story. And I want to read that story to you because it tells about how God chose someone to be a king who apparently didn't look anything like a king. So let me take you back to the beginning of that chapter. The Lord said to the prophet Samuel, How long will you grieve over King Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have appointed, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on the oldest son, Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. This is our verse. We're on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called another son, Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made another son, Shammah, pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before the prophet. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's just out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And so Jesse sent and brought his son, his youngest son, in. And now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Even David's own father thought so little of him that when the prophet Samuel said, bring your sons here, he didn't even think to bring David as well. But David became the greatest of the kings of Israel and was called a man after God's own heart. Reminds me of a story of a scrawny little guy who applied to be a lumberjack. And the foreman said, you can't be a lumberjack. You're too small and too weak. And the guy said, give me an axe. And 30 seconds later, he had chopped down a huge tree. The foreman said, where did you learn to chop like that? And the guy said, the Sahara forest. And the foreman said, don't you mean the Sahara Desert? He said, well, that's what they call it now. Here's the point. God created you exactly the way you are. It's part of his perfect plan for you. He wanted you to look just like you look. He wanted you to have exactly the skills and the abilities and the talents that you have. This was his perfect design for you. Back in Psalm 139, in verses 13 and 14, King David wrote these words, For you formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Would you say the same thing that King David did? Do you look at the way that you're made and say, Wow, God, you did a great job on me. I am wonderfully made. Not many of us are really that excited about the way God made us. Most of us are very critical of ourselves. Maybe you don't say it out loud. Maybe you walked into church this morning smiling, but inside you're saying, I'm overweight. I'm not very smart. I can't manage my money well. My looks leave a lot to be desired. I can't seem to live my life in a way that pleases God. I'm a terrible Christian. God must be very disappointed in me. God is not pleased with that kind of thinking. When you put yourself down, who are you really putting down? When you say, I'm too big, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good looking, I have no talent, you're really pointing at the creator who made you. When you say, God, I'm worthless, I'm no good, I can't do anything, you're really saying, God, you blew it when you made me. And God says, no, I didn't. He says, I created you just the way I wanted you, but you just haven't figured out yet how much I love you and what my purpose for you is. When you understand those things, you won't put yourself down. God doesn't care about your outward appearance, and he could care less if you look like Robert Pattinson or Taylor Swift because the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, for those of you who are a little bit older, God doesn't care if you look like Tom Selleck or Raquel Welch. We should praise God for his wonderful creation of you. You are a marvelous creation, and you were designed exactly the way that he wanted you. Not only did God make you a wonderful creation, but God has a wonderful plan for your life. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. During a severe depression in the country of Ireland, a work program was put together in place to give people jobs. They were to prepare and build roads, and that be- they became known as the famine roads. The famine roads have been described as a well-intentioned but hopelessly misguided initiative. For a time, it went well. The men were even seen as they worked hard, and they were glad to be back at work again. But after a while, the word got out that the roads they were building didn't lead anywhere. The government just wanted to create work, and so these roads just ran out and stopped. And as the truth gradually dawned on them that they had been put to work solely to provide them employment as an excuse to feed them, The men grew discouraged and unmotivated, and they stopped singing. One of them said, roads to nowhere are difficult to build. That's true. If you can't see a lasting purpose in what you're doing, then why do it? Why waste your time? Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with him. God did advance planning on your life. He didn't wing it. The verse we read earlier that said, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That's one of the reasons why abortion is so wrong. God has numbered the days of every child, even before that child is born. He has a purpose for that person, and he planned them out in advance. Now we're going to look at the last section, beginning at verse 17 of Psalm 139, where it says, God is continually leading me. Verse 17, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. This passage says that God's thoughts about you outnumber even the grains of sand. And what that means is that God is thinking about you all the time. What is he thinking? Well, one of the things that he's thinking is written in verse 23. He says that he's searching your heart, searching your motives, and your anxious thoughts or your worries and leading you in the right direction. God is constantly thinking about you so that he can constantly lead you, and you can follow him and be blessed. Every time you do the right thing, God is watching. Every time instead of sinning, you choose not to sin. Every time that you resist temptation, every time for you you stand up for the right thing, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, God knows it, and he sees your faithfulness to him. In Matthew 6.1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, when we read that verse, we often think about the negative side of this verse. Don't do things just so that you'll be noticed. And that's true. But let's look at the positive side of this verse. Every good deed will be rewarded. Every good deed will be rewarded, no matter how insignificant, regardless of whether anybody else on earth saw it or not. Every encouragement that you give to other people, every kind word or compliment that you give to your children, every time you do a thoughtful act for your husband or your wife, every time you help a stranger or a neighbor, or encourage somebody who is feeling down, Every time you had the opportunity to gossip, and you didn't. Every time you had the opportunity to be critical, and you weren't. God sees it all. Imagine yourself on a giant stage, and you're the only person on that stage acting out your life. And in the audience, there is only one person, and that person is God. He's not there as a critic, writing down the things that you did wrong, how you messed up. He's out there clapping and saying, I see that good thing you did. Keep on going. Nobody else saw it, but I did. I know that thought you just had, and I I know it's a positive thought. I saw that. More and more in my life, I'm trying to live out my life for an audience of one, God. It ultimately doesn't matter what any of you think about me or what anybody thinks about the way that I appear to them. What matters is what God thinks of me. He knows what I'm really like and what I really think and what my motives really are. What matters is the integrity in your life when nobody is looking because there is somebody looking, God. That's a tremendous motivator for us to live a godly life when we realize that uh, nothing in our life is a secret, that God sees it all. It's his opinion that is going to count in eternity. He's not waiting for you to mess up. He's watching for you to do well. God says, I know all of your faithfulness. So what should be my response? If God sees all the good things that I do and he's out there cheering for me, and I'm going to get credit for them, then my response should be, don't be discouraged. Some of you are saying, I'm trying to do the right thing in my marriage, and I I don't see any results. I've been trying to be the right kind of person and, and respond with patience to my kids or with my parents, to my husband or my wife. I've been trying to be a good Christian at work. I've been trying to have a good testimony at school, and I don't think it's paying off. I don't see it making an impact on anybody's life. God says, I see it. And it doesn't matter who else does. No good thing will go unrewarded. Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for these words that have been written for our encouragement, that have been preserved all of these years just exactly how you had them recorded. We thank you that you created us with a purpose, that we are exactly the way that you intended us. Help us to see ourselves in that light and not being critical of your creation. Father, I pray that you would encourage us to do the right things and not to do them just so that we're seen by other people, but by you. And Father, as we continue our worship this morning through singing, through the giving of our gifts, we ask that you would be honored through those things and through our life this week. May we be filled with your Spirit as we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.